I want to open, this is probably breaking all the rules of the homiletics class I took in seminary, but I've already broken the rest of them, so I may as well break them all. I want to open with a quote, and it is a quote from uh, G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, from the chapter Elfland. Um, If you're not familiar with G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton hated Calvinists, but I love him. Um, Not only was he a hater of Calvinists, but he is in many ways the most Calvinist Catholic that ever lived. And I love him for it, and he didn't even know it. Uh, His admiration, or my admiration of him is, of course, of no value. There is someone at the door. Oh, no, never mind. We're good. It's just Mary Catherine. (laughs) Quick! This is what he says is he is trying to write the perspective between the secularist understanding of the world and the biblical Christian's understanding of the world. I want you to listen. It's a little bit flowery because it is G.K. Chesterton, but I want you to listen because I think what he says here strikes at the heart of the overall theme of the book of Ecclesiastes and what I, the kind of Christian that I would love for you to become. All the towering materialism which dominates the modern mind, rests ultimately upon one assumption, a false assumption. It is supposed that if a thing goes on repeating itself, it is probably dead, a piece of clockwork. People feel that if the universe was personal, it would vary. If the sun were alive, it would dance. This is a fallacy even in relation to known fact. For the variation in human affairs is generally brought into them, not by life, but by death. By the dying down or breaking off of their strength or desire, a man varies his movements because of some slight element of failure or fatigue. He gets into an omnibus, which is just a bus, because he is tired of walking. Or he walks because he is tired of sitting still. But if his life and joy were so gigantic that he never tired of going to Islington, he might go to Islington as regularly as the the Thames, that's the river, goes to Sheerness. The very speed and ecstasy of his life would have the stillness of death. The sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning, but the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. Now, to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children." When they find some game or joke that they specially enjoy, a child kicks his legs rhythmically. You know what I'm talking about, parents, at the table. Through excess, not absence of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, 
do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that He has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. The repetition, the repetition in nature may not be a mere reoccurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. All right. Sermon done. He brought it. <laughs> you can spend the night contemplating such whimsy and wisdom. This is what I want to look at, and I want to do so under two headings. This idea that I want you to be a Christian that says, every morning I'm ready to do it again. Two points. Words from the wise and two kinds of vanity. Words from the wise and two kinds of vanity. Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the Kohelet, the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, is one who asked for wisdom, who gave it up, and I would argue was restored in that wisdom. Ecclesiastes is a book written by Solomon, I would argue, in the latter part of his life, having done it all, having drunk deeply of the well of divine wisdom, forsook it for um, false gods and the hedonistic pleasures of this world to be restored later. And so we ought to listen to one who has lived, to one who has seen this preacher, this Kohelet, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And ultimately, my culminating challenge to you as Christians is, do it again and again and again and again and again. What's the problem with that after all? What is the problem with monotony? To labor with joy, with hope, with longing and expectation? How many of you been told, maybe adults, you remember your childhood and you came to them when you got your first job and said, it's just so boring. And your parents look at you and say, welcome to life. And you go, okay, I'm not ready. I need every day different. I want to wake up and I want my life to look like a movie where there's always something exciting going on. Because we often think, as Chesterton said so wisely, the problem is the monotony. It's the circumstance. No, I think the problem is the person. Because if familiarity breeds contempt, whoa, our spouses are in trouble, aren't they? With all those small kisses and expressions of love and affection. It is, in fact, in the habit, in the monotony, in the mundane, that the Christian excels beyond his neighbor as he is moving and laboring and pushing forward and bringing down the kingdom of heaven onto earth. Not a place of scorn and derision in that which is familiar, but embracing it as those who have been redeemed and as redeemed sons and daughters of God, able to labor and say, do it again. Let's do it again. Now, how do we do that? 
Well, Solomon would have us know that we were made for something greater than life under the sun. In fact, this is a popular refrain that happens throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun, under the sun. There are no places in this earth that take place out from underneath the sun. And even if you can't see it, because it's, it's dark already, depressing as that is, the sun is somewhere else. And someone is basking in the warmth of it, and I envy them to some degree. We all live under the same sun. Ecclesiastes is the writing of a man who has learned his lesson, and this is what he has learned. We are made for something, yet the fall has corrupted our labors. It has frustrated us. It has corrupted our hearts, and so what has entered into the monotony even of the work that God gave to Adam to do, day after day after day. Oh, can you imagine Adam saying, I have to go name the animals again. But with every day, he woke up. I'm thinking of the character from the Lego movie, whatever his name is. Have y'all seen this? And he's just so excited about everything. And what's interesting is the movie writers look upon that position with some disdain. But they actually captured what the heart of a believer is. It is contentment with simple life. A life even of monotony. The problem is not repetition and monotony. The problem is sin. It is the futility and frustration that has come not just with hard labor, but the fact that we set aside that labor for something else. I remember... As I was preparing for ministry and I was writing a sermon to preach as an intern, I didn't do such a great job. And one of the elders looked at me and said, I know what your problem is. You may actually be pretty good at this if you tried. (laughs) I went, oh. I mean, he cut me to the heart. And this this is the wisdom he gave me. You must stay upon the rock until it lends its jewel. Until it yields up its jewel, you must take the pick, you must take the axe, and you must carve the rock. And his point was, you have to keep going. You have to persist in the labor. And that work that Adam and his wife were given in the garden remains a work to be fruitful, to multiply, to take dominion, and the monotony and the repetition haven't changed. What has changed is that we despise the monotony of those things. And we think, oh man, I'm living for the weekend. Why? Well, because sometimes you get to sleep a little later on Saturday, right? Oh man, that's nice. Until the kids come in like they do on every day of the week because they have been taught to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, which is great, or 6.30, but not on Saturday. (laughs) Come on! We go to the lake, and we think that life consists of not the moments in which we spend our toil, but the moments of life outside of toil, which is bad news for people who work a lot. Instead, we must be redeemed in our perspective, our goals, and find joy in the plotting, in the monotony. Stop worrying and begin to worship and revere and fear the Lord. And this is what vanity is. 
Vanity is a word that could mean, well, essentially two different things depending on the kind of person that you are. Are you a kind of person that interprets God's relationship with the world through the cross or not? All men go to work and two different men can go to the same location, do the same job, and have a very different idea about what they're doing and what they're made for. What's the difference? It is a redeemed perspective. We must instead interpret life under the sun by the one who sits above the sun. The one who holds all of the cosmos in his hands has given us insight and wisdom as to how we are to live. And the first primary principle of how we are to live in the world under the sun is that we must embrace the one who came into the world under the sun and became like us so that we might go to where he is. Do not envy the world, but embrace Christ Jesus. This is the wisdom that Solomon would have for us, and it leads me then to my second point, life under the sun. And in this life under the sun, we have reflected for us two kinds of vanity. Now, you don't see them here. Actually, you see the word vanity used. Do I have that? No, I don't have that under your headings. That's sort of subheading under my second heading. Two kinds of vanity. Now, look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So I say to you, what is vanity? It's all vanity. It's all vanity. I mean, laundry. What is the deal with laundry? That's a very Seinfeld question, isn't it? What is the deal with laundry? Right? What is the deal with laundry? You do it, and as soon as your kids get a hold of the things you washed, it's like you never did it. It's like super entropy. It's like the law of thermodynamics sped up times 10. I know I just washed those jeans for you. Why are they back in the dirty clothes? Well, because I wore them yesterday. Well, you know you can wear a pair of jeans for several days in a row. Well, it's harder for me to put them up than it is for you to wash them and put them up for me is actually what your kids are saying. Right? That's the entropy. Or what happens is... You get a paycheck, and you look at it and go, sweet. You put the paycheck in the bank, and then you check your account two days later. I thought I got paid two days ago. Where did it go? Or you come home from work. You sit down. You eat. You hang out with your family. You go to bed, and you think, I think this feels like something I've done. It just this this cycle, the monotony, the, the sort of, repetition of it all. This is vanity. It doesn't have to be nihilism, but it is repetition. Now, many people would look at the book of Ecclesiastes and say, Solomon has become a bit of a pessimist. He's a little bit moody. This is not what Solomon is doing. Solomon isn't complaining. He hasn't lost perspective. This is Solomon at his greatest, clearest expression of this is the way the world is and this is how you can rise above the way the world is and see things differently. 
It isn't hopeless, pointless nihilism, but rather speaking of the things of earth as temporary, repetitive, and seemingly worthless if it were not for Christ having entered into our world and being given gospel eyes, gospel ears, and gospel hands. And so vanity can be seen in two ways, as a pessimist or as an optimist. Either it can be something that is despised and to be flee, to flee from it, or it is something that can be embraced and used for the glory of God. So what is vanity for the fool? If we're looking at life under the sun and vanity in two different ways, the first one is vanity for the fool or for the wicked. And so this life under the sun applies to all of us. We're all under it. It's not two different sons for two different kinds of people. And you've heard it said, everybody puts their pant leg on one leg at a time. Right? You may be a celebrity in Hollywood, but you're no different from me. They live under the sun like I do. This is Psalm 49. Our boredom with the things of this life is not the product of repetition but our own discontentment, selfishness, inability to marvel in that which God delights Himself in and marvels in. The reason why vanity descends or is corrupted to the realm of nihilism. Do you know what nihilism is? It's just a... It's all... Everything's just going to die. It's just sort of uh, this philosophical, emotional commitment to misery. It's Eeyore, okay? You know who Eeyore is? The... Donkey that could never find his tail. Just always complaining. Always complaining. He is the opposite of Pooh Bear. Because everything always just sort of, oh, he marveled at everything. There's Solomonic wisdom in Winnie the Pooh. There you go. And so the reason why vanity descends upon us is because an unbeliever, one who is not in awe of the glory of God, doesn't see anything beyond the sun. And therefore it is to be escaped. Death and taxes. (laughs) And so what is their philosophical ideal? Eat, drink, and be merry. A new job, a new car, a new spouse. Constant rotation and repetition. It is a vampiric way of living. You suck the joy out of everything, and then you move on to the next thing, and you leave the empty husks of those experiences left behind. But joy and felicity cannot be found in the stuff of this earth, not in their own. Not of their own accord. For as soon as you seek joy in something and you see and it looks as though it is weighty and made of material and as soon as you pick it up it just disappears like ash in your hands. And you cling tighter and there it's gone. And for them, salvation is freedom from the mundane. But the solution is not salvation from the mundane. Salvation is the redeeming of the mundane. And so vanity for the wise is this. It's what Chesterton said. A child kicks his legs rhythmically though through excess, not of absence of life, because children have an abounding vitality. And so they always say, do it again. Dad, let's play that game again. The same 
game, the cynicism that that reflects. And they're just saying, Dad, it's life, man. Live a little. (sighs) Vanity requires vitality. And where does that vitality come from? It comes from being tethered and anchored into the one that Chesterton says is perhaps younger than we are. And every day the sun comes up and he walks into your room and he goes, Get up! It's a beautiful day! And you pull the sheets back over. I'm speaking metaphorically. (laughs) I love to wake my children up like that. Come on! Let's go! Dad! Stop! I'm probably faking it. And I'm really just trying to annoy them. But the principle remains that vanity for the wise is not hopelessness. It's, all right, this time I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to do it better. Have you seen sort of like the um, Groundhog Day type films in which the gentleman is uh, in this recurring thing and his first sort of response to it is, I can't believe what's happening. And then he grows despairing. And then there's always that montage in which he is learning something and seeking to perfect the rhythm of it. And so he learns the violin. And he learns sort of the rhythms of life. He steps out of the way when the car passes by. Those types of things. Every day is an opportunity to do it better than the day before. Or, at the very least, to do it the same. But to have our hearts transformed so that we might actually say, do it again. So what I mean is this. You walk into the kitchen... You know what? When I went upstairs the night before and I left the kitchen, it was clean. But somehow this morning, it's not clean anymore. What happened? All I did was go to sleep. Where did the mess come from? And in our home, you know who gets blamed? Mr. Nobody. Mr. Nobody is this incorporeal being that sort of floats around our house and he makes messes everywhere. He's the scapegoat. And it's not just the kids who believe in Mr. Nobody. (laughs) I also believe in Mr. Nobody. My name is Joby, and I believe in Mr. Nobody. And the fact of the matter is, you go down and your first response is, I cannot believe I have to clean up someone else's dishes. That's often my response. But now that I'm reading the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm going, oh man, this is bad. I am way off base. Not, it's a dish. Awesome. Where's the soap? How fast can I clean this one and not break it? (laughs) You know what I mean? Which disposition is God more pleased with? Do you laugh in the face of repetition, and see it not as a curse, but a tool to perfect. True joy, true felicity can only be found when you embrace the vanity 
as an opportunity, as one who has received the gospel, Christ having come into the world and transformed and given us purpose to our labor so that we might feed the chickens, do the dishes, do the laundry, go to work, fill up the gas tank, all of those things over and over again, put on the same pair of pants and the same shirt, all for the glory of God. It is the only way you will ever righteously escape the nihilistic end of vanity. I'm talking about a redeemed vanity. Do the little things with joy. Do it all with joy. And so as Solomon moves through this, he's talking about all of these instances in life, and it's just, it happens and then it doesn't happen. It's over. It happens and then it's done. I mean, Christmas was yesterday, right? And somehow it will be tomorrow. How did we... Where is the time? How do we make the most of it? We take it and we claim it and we use it for the glory of God. We say, this day I will serve the Lord. This gift I will serve the Lord with. Now here's how... Um, Pastor Doug Wilson puts it in his little sort of overall reflection on the book of Ecclesiastes. He's so much better at word pictures than I am. This is what he says. The blessings of this life, and there are many of them, are like a can of peaches. To his beloved, God gives them both the can and the can opener. To others, he gives just the cans. What does it profit a man to have the whole world but no ability to taste? Who is wealthier, the man with one can of peaches and a can opener or a man with a thousand can of peaches and no can opener? Without Christ, the most a rich man can do is lick the label trying to get some kind of taste from the glue. I should have just quoted other people. It's really, it's, it's, this is what I want us to see. And this is what Solomon says in Proverbs. Better to be poor at a table with vegetables and where there is peace than to be rich and well-fed where there is conflict. And the world keeps buying the same product. The end of it is a nihilistic misery. And so you can say, death and taxes, or death and taxes, (laughs) Let's do this. A call to child simplicity. A call to delight and to rejoice and worship the one who has given us the ability to delight. This is part of what worship is. It is to write our perspective and to remind us in the words of Wilson, you got a can opener in your hand. Use it. While the rose is going (laughs) with their cans. And they can't get them open. Redeem the vanity of this world. So, what do we learn? How men might pass through this transitory world well, glorying God. But you must do this only by looking to the one who dwells beyond the sun, the one whom the sun obeys, in whom all creation lives, moves, and has its being. And to borrow again from Wilson, be grateful for the peaches and be faithful in using the opener. 
Christ, who has entered into this broken, fallen world, offers us a repetitious mission. And it is. Every Monday morning, do you know what my first thought is? Sunday is coming. (laughs) Actually, in about 15 minutes, I will be thinking, Sunday is coming. It's the deadline. It's the hard stop. It's these things coming at us constantly. It's not just even this sort of monotony. Sometimes it is tragedy. Sometimes it is an interruption that doesn't prove to be a blessing in our eyes. It proves to be a struggle. Yet again, it is an opportunity to rise beyond the stuff of this earth, to gaze upon the glory of God, and then to go back down into this earth and say, I will be salt, I will be light, by embracing the glory of vanity. Christ has done it, and by His power we can do it too. Let's pray.